to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. Well, good morning. Thank you guys for um, leading some of those songs. Um, Great time this year, time of the year to just focus our thoughts Um, to take some time to remind ourselves of the truths that we celebrate, that first song that we sang there, Be Near, O God of Us. Um, The world didn't even understand exactly what God had been doing or what God was doing. Um, In that song we sang, Your nearness to us um, is our good. And so just that idea that God knew that what we needed, what his creation needed, was him. So that's why he started out in Eden. And then even after the fall, what did God do? He immediately started pursuing to restore, to recreate. So since that point, it's been this process of God recreating a new people, a new identity, a people where they would say God is our God and, and we are his people. We are his possession. And so um, that was what God was doing all along. And so all through history, that's what it's been kind of building towards. So um, you guys know that um, um, most people struggle with this idea of change, or most people struggle with this idea of um, transition. So you may be a person, some people are really, really fearful of change and transition, and they don't realize it until it actually starts hitting. And so whether that's um, going to a new city, going to a new job, um, maybe children come into your life, uh, maybe a new relationship, uh, there's this new guy, there's this new girl, there's, there's a new situation. So many people really, really struggle uh, with change, and we don't realize it, and you start getting short with people, and you start getting kind of antsy, and you're kind of irritable, and you're kind of um, frustrated, and you don't even realize, like, oh, really? I'm stressed because I'm nervous about this change, and I, I'm not handling it well, and, and I just haven't even thought through that yet. Um, so transition, change, renewal, um, that's what the beautiful time of spring, like I've told you, it's kind of my favorite time of year. Um, new life, freshness, creation itself, transitioning from kind of gray and dead to new life that springs forward. Um, you guys know that um, I don't like change in some areas, so some of you know, notice that I, I wear like two shirts so from week to week. So I'm sure everyone, like I know, like you can read pastor blogs, like you should have 52 different shirts to like almost amaze you guys. So every week, like they walk out and be like, whoa, well, let's just clap because he's got a new shirt on. Like, that's a cool, cool shirt. And so, and you guys are like, really, Sankey? Like yours have holes in them, like, you know? And so um, I, I wear shirts just repeatedly. Um, kind of like you've heard the college guy who has the, you know, the pile of shirts. And then they, um, you know, like you... Uh, it's Tuesday now, so I go pick up that shirt, and like that was really comfortable. I think if I just flip it, they won't see the spaghetti stains. I can wear it. So mine's not that bad. You know, I'm married now, so um, we do wash my shirt. So it's not like I just wear that shirt every week um, or one of those two shirts, but um, I I do at least wash them. Um, But when I find something that I like, I literally will go to a store, and like if I, and it could be Walmart, it's those $5 cotton 
polyester blends and they're like stretchy because I, I'm, I'm so muscled up and if I just flex, I know it like if I just flex, I need a lot of f- stretchy stuff. So, you know, or just gain tons of weight every year. And so I like the stretchy. So I'll go and get a shirt. And then if I like it, <laughs> Jamie thinks it's crazy. Like I'll make a special trip. I'll go back and buy three more of that same shirt, same color and everything. And like, I know some, Jamie says like, you need medication. Like there's, she thinks I need a, not just a, a therapist, but like a team of therapists to just follow me around, you know, kind of like that. Uh, we love that, that new, uh, the progressive commercial or whatever, like the guy who's helping new adults. And she, she thinks that I need that guy in my life. No, 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 get away, get away. You, you've already got that shirt, you know, and that, so I just laughed because that's me. Um, we get furniture, and we keep it for like 20 years. And um, so this week, you guys know that we're in this transition of moving. And so literally, our dresser, when you walk into our bedroom, like you walk in our bedroom, and then our dresser sits right there. We have to go around the dresser. And so we've almost worn through the carpet. That's not going to be a high selling point. So it's a really bad spot. Um, our boys, surprisingly, when they come in from playing and they go to our uh, bathroom to shower, um, that's what they did as they were little, they would shower in there. Then there's this, this little path, this dirt path. So I moved that dresser this week. I moved it out of the way. That's why people redecorate. That's why people move their furniture. Not They don't wait 10 years to move furniture because you should just see. Like, it's all clean, sparkly, beautiful carpet right there for this, you know, three-foot patch. So it just stands out. And so we just don't transition real well. We don't um, We don't move stuff. Um, moving that dresser, all kinds of stuff. I was like, oh, God, here's that, you know, here's this, found this. I think there's two dead animals that were back there that we were going to surprise the boys with as pets. And they, we put them back there, and, you know, it's like Clark Griswold finding the um, Christmas present that was wrapped. Like, oh, Jamie would have enjoyed this necklace back in 2014. And so we leave stuff for a long time. We don't transition well. Um, all of that shows how we're not used to that. We don't see what's coming, and we don't handle it well. And so here for two or three or 4,000 years, depending on your understanding of creation, here God had been working towards this very week that we celebrate. Not just Easter next week, but this very week, what we're looking at was going to be all culminating all the work that he had done. So think through um, the transition, the change, the renewal, and the rebirth that was in God's heart and God's mind and his, his powerful sovereignty. Through all of man's sin, through all nations and kings and, and queens and all the powerful nations that would, would work against him, he still had this sovereign purpose and plan. The, like we sing those songs, the, though the nations raged, God was working in the middle of that. Um, God's plan of redemption. So this is called his redemptive historical plan. And so from the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, he started working forth. And you, you many of you know the story that he, he told Satan that um, from her offspring, there's going to come one. And, and Satan, you're going to injure his heel. You're going to strike his heel. But he's going to ultimately destroy you. And so that was kind of cryptic. People didn't make that understanding. That's actually the first place that that word, um, the gospel, the good news, euangelion, that's the first pronouncement of the gospel, that you're going to try to take him down, but he's going to ultimately crush you. And so that was the first time in the Garden of Eden. And now God started setting forth his plan. Um, So a beautiful situation. After all of man's bad decisions and sinful pursuits, we see God working rebirth and change. Um, thinking through that, there's the, there's the human perspective that people didn't understand. So think of Old Testament Israel. 
um, as God brings them out of Egypt. It's a huge theme. And so we're going we're to look at that because this is Passover week. So right now, starting Friday, we would have all trekked into Jerusalem. So if you were a Jew, if you're an Israelite, or if you were a God-fearing Gentile, you would have made a trip into Jerusalem for Passover. And so we're going to look at that, like why does that matter? And so this week is not just about Easter. It's also all the culmination that God was doing these days from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And so we're going to take a running look at that that section of Scripture in John today. Um, For those people living in that time period, the the things that were occurring um, were just like any other week. We've made the Passover trip every year. We gather a bag full of stuff. We don't have a lot of food. We didn't have, you know, like they didn't have Costco and uh, Walmart Supercenter. And so um, you, you gathered what you could. Some people would take um, some of their animals. Also, they would say that, that tens of thousands of people headed into Jerusalem. So to make sacrifices, literally, they, they said that sometimes some historians uh, say that over 250,000 sheep were herded up to Jerusalem. So it's and it's up kind of up in these hills and it's kind of dangerous. So two hundred fifty thousand sheep because they could sell those and so those were going to be sacrifices. And amidst those two hundred fifty thousand lambs, here comes the very Lamb of God. People not understanding what God was about to do this day, this one week that all of the history of the world, all the peoples of the earth, people that had died three thousand years ago, if they were a fearer of God and they were looking for a Messiah, they'd have been in the grave for 3,000 years, they were about to be atoned for this week. People in the Old Testament, those rituals and sacrifices, and you know they kind of did things like these little steps, like we go around this circle three times, we go over here and we take a stick and we touch it to this thing, and if you touch the other side of that, watch out, you may die. You touch it this way, you come over here, you go behind this thing, you, and all these little steps, those rituals, those dietary laws, those um, societal laws of, of things, of boundaries that you had to set, um, the Sabbath rest, all those things, all those laws of God, we're never going to save one person, no matter how well you kept it. No one was going to be saved by a a sacrificed bull or goat or lamb. It was all waiting on this week that we're looking at. And so as we get into this week, I hope that you take some time this week, and we're going to look at John chapter 12, and then we're going to just run through some highlights of this week up to the crucifixion, and then we'll come back next week and look at the resurrection. But I would encourage you to to take, take maybe Monday, Look at John 13. Tuesday, look at John 14. Uh, 14, 15. Wednesday and Thursday, look at John 15 and 16. Friday, look at John 17. And so just spend some time. Just just read through those. Just spend some time and and ask the Lord, what would you want to do in my heart? Not necessarily, hey, I'm reading John 13. Will you tell me which job to take? Would you tell me which color of Hyundai to buy? Would you tell me, um, you know, what, what should I eat at McDonald's for lunch or Arby's? As I'm reading John, no, no bigger things. Like, hey God, is my heart really captivated by what you've done here? Are, are you enough? Are you enough in what you've done on the cross? And so um, I want you to think through those things this week. Um, in, in Ephesians, we have this picture of all the Old Testament was the shadow form of what God was going to do in reality this week. And so in Ephesians, we have a slide. Um, uh, Ephesians 1, this is God's redemptive plan. It says, in him, in Christ, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So here, here's the Old Testament, three or 4,000 years, the mystery of his will. Well, I thought that all the sacrifices were what were going to save us. I thought there was going to be a powerful Messiah that would come and knock down the Romans or the Babylonians or whatever group that was ruling against Israel that was going to be a powerful socioeconomic leader, a powerful militaristic leader. That wasn't it at all. It's a mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of, the, of, of time. So at God's sovereign right choice, this many years, this many people on the earth, that I'm going to bring Christ onto the earth as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So as, as we look at that, this week, all of creation has culminated to God's purposes and plan of redemption that are going to be fulfilled in these passages we're reading this week. You can't overemphasize it enough. You can't exaggerate it enough. And for us, if, if you're a follower of Christ, whether that's tomorrow, Monday, and Tuesday, or whether you get hit by a car later today and it's over, or you have a stroke next month, your first waking moment into eternity is going to be celebrating what we read about today. It's not how successful your career was. When you cross that threshold into new life, and your first waking moment is face-to-face -face with Christ, if you're a believer, then all that we're reading about is accomplished through that. And so what a beautiful, beautiful picture. Um, we're going to be in John 12, and I, again, I would encourage you to spend time looking, just taking one chapter of those 12, 13, 14, 15, 14 through 17, I would say go back to 12. I think there's a turn in 12 and definitely 13. But 14 through 17 are known as the um, farewell discourses. That those chapters are known as there's this turn in John's writing called the farewell discourses where he singled off his disciples. He knows he's about to face the cross, and he's, he's kind of doing his last bit of teaching, his farewell teachings to them, to where he's telling them, I'm about to go die on the cross. And they're still like, hey, pass the bread. Hey, where'd Judas go? And they're not even getting it. You know, they're still like, and you remember Peter's like, Lord, no one's going to take you away. I, I'll fight anyone. No one's going to take you away. And Jesus is like, you're not understanding. This is going to get really, really bad at the end of the week, and all of you are going to betray me. And so in John 12, um, three, the main idea that I want you to see is, is very profound. Just Jesus was sent to die, to be resurrected, and to glorify God. And so sadly in America, even inside long-standing churches, that, that's just not enough. It's got to be cooler it's got to be trendier. It's got to be something powerful to tweet and, and put some new word. We've got to kind of give Jesus a facelift. That, that's, that's no longer enough for us. And that's inside the church. So what about the lost world? Well, that surely wouldn't be. And in the Bible Belt, well, everyone knows the bullet points about Jesus. Yeah, he died on the cross. Yeah, if you ask Jesus in your heart, you're supposed to go to this heaven. More and more growing numbers don't even believe that literally every person is going to either end up in an eternal hell or an eternal heaven. More and more people do not understand that. Uh, we've got two teens now, and one coming up to be a teenager. That generation has already been written like, like great numbers, maybe over 70 or 80% really have a hard time with that absolute truth. 
So how are you going to raise your kids in a world that doesn't believe that's really going to be accurate? That at the end, if you just had good intentions, or if you're a murderer, good intentions or a murderer, you're probably going to get the second chance. Like, oh, now I realize there really was a God. Well, can I go to the good place then? Because there's not even really a bad place. And so... Um, this week all culminates on that. In John 12, um, we have these three big settings that John makes this turn. And, and so I want us to see that in, in John 12, 1, that he, he brings up the Passover. So if you want to open up to John 12, um, he, he brings up the Passover, and he brings up Lazarus, and he brings up the triumphal entry. And so um, I'm going to read to you the, the main point of this section of Scripture that we're going to land on today, and then um, we'll get into John 12. But uh, let me read John 12, 31 through 33. And Jesus said this, now is the judgment of this world. Let me find it in this Bible. Um, Yeah, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So that's the focal point today. Let's pray. God, we do come to you admitting that we are distracted. We are distracted by what we want in life. We're distracted by the next step in life. We're distracted by so many things. And yet, the most glorious thing, the most beautiful thing, the thing that we will literally celebrate and rejoice in and live in for all of eternity, millions upon millions of years, is this truth that you sent Jesus to die and that he resurrected, and in that glorified you. We will live in a glorified state because of those truths. And right here, Jesus himself tells us that judgment has come, that he's ripping power away from the enemy, and that when he is lifted up and exalted, he has the power and authority to draw people's hearts to himself. So would you help us to understand that as we look at this last week of his life on earth? In your name we pray, amen. So, um, looking at this verse here, um, all the other scriptures that we're going to go to is, is unfolding out of this one verse, John 12, 32, um, 31 and 32. And so Jesus brings up their judgment of mankind, the world. So it says, he says, now is the judgment of this world. So remember earlier, I just said this, that, that, he, that John is, is wanting us to think through, look at, look, turn, go from John 12, 32, go back to John 12, 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, hint, hint, whom he had raised from the dead. John makes a turn in chapter 12 of Jesus' life and his teaching and miracles and all these things, and he goes, he brings up two huge things. Now there's this turning point. Remember Passover. Do you remember Passover? What happened at Passover? Another thing, Lazarus. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? Because you're going to need to believe that if you're going to believe what I'm about to tell you. You're going to need to make a connection between the Passover and what God was doing and what God did with Lazarus to understand what's about to happen. And it is the redemption of the whole world. And so John kind of lays that out there. So then Jesus, later on in that chapter, says, judgment of the world's coming. Do you make the connection? Judgment of the world, Passover. Passover. 
that Satan is going to be defeated. So he says there in that verse, now will the ruler of the world be cast out. So what what happens at the resurrection? What, What happened with Lazarus? He's resurrected. What happens with Jesus? That's the proof that Satan and sin and death have no power over Jesus. That he tells Satan that you are now defeated. You don't have power over my followers. They used to live in, in the control of sin. So if you're, if you're not a believer today, sin controls you. Now, you may be a nice person. You, your neighbor may be nice. You, you do sinful things, but also you're controlled by and under the power of sin. Jesus resurrecting from the cross, his, his, his death on the cross is what atoned for your sins. His resurrection is what freed Satan's power over you. That is God's stamp of approval saying he no longer rules and my, my wrath was taken out on him. Sin will not receive wrath for those people. Their sin will not hold them down anymore. And so the resurrection was where your sins were broken. Now, sometimes we still choose pattern sin, right? But you don't have to. And so that's that new identity. We're like, hey, stupid. You know, like, just stop doing that. You don't have to still do that. I don't have to treat people that way. I don't have to talk to people that way. I don't have to have these little secret things that I do in my life. I'm, I'm free from sin because of the resurrection, because of what Christ did. And so John wants to get out there. I want you to remember Passover, and I want you to understand the resurrection. And then Jesus, later on in John 12, G- John says, hey, Jesus even said this. Judgment has come on the world. And not only that, but I am about to crush Satan, which was predicted back in Genesis 3, to where he has no power. The ruler of this world is cast out. Now, you and I know, man, I I wish that was fully accomplished, right? So in God's plan, he didn't crush Satan to where he was completely powerless. He still attacks us. He still has, and Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. But he has limited power. And so then Jesus says that third statement there, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So I want you to see those, those things here. So the, the, what, was the, what was the picture of the Passover? Um, let's look at um, that John chapter 12, verse 1 there, where he says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. So... Um, Think through, um, I think I have a slide showing where um, the, the, what happened at the Passover. Um, so we, we see here um, in, in the Passover, remember why God wanted to be known as the God who delivered you out of Egypt. So that was, an, that was a shadow of what God was going to deliver people out of their sin later on. So it was the Israelites, God's people, with his promises, and they were seeking salvation. They were slaves, right? So we have there why John brought up the Passover and why Jesus is going to the week of Passover when John makes that turn and says, hey, by the way, it's the week of Passover. And Jesus and all these people are coming up. Everyone has no clue that what God's about to do. So judgment is what happened. So do you remember the Passover? Moses gets told by God, go and kill an innocent lamb a purified lamb, and then take its blood and wipe it over the door frame. And so then it was, it was the 10th of the plagues. Remember all the plagues that had hit Egypt? He said, this one is going to be the, the death of babies. So if, if you don't take the blood and spread it over your door frame, angel of the Lord comes. A lot of people say that was a, a second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus that showed up on the scene. 
kind of different view of what we think of, you know, God 2.0, Jesus 2.0, like always happy guy, right? Always graceful guy. That angel of the Lord shows up and death to all those Egyptians or Israelite babies if you didn't have that over them. So God passed over those that had the blood over their door, right? So that was the Passover. And so we celebrate, the, the, the Israelites celebrated that every single year, and it was a time for them to pause, and God wanted his own reputation to be known by, I saved you by passing over and, and, and saving you out of the people of Egypt. And so if you think through the Old Testament, were, for three or 4,000 years, was there a clarity of ask this guy Jesus into your heart, pray this prayer? What, what were they supposed to do? What was God known for? Did he tell them a whole list of things? How many times does God say, you know me, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And so what happened with Abraham and Isaac? The God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. You know me. Trust the God that delivered you out of the land of Egypt. So that Passover was huge. He wanted to be known as the God that that delivered them out of Egypt. And so in that it was death by a substitutionary lamb, and they, they, they put the blood over the doorframe. That was the Passover. Um, it was a picture of slavery, where they were controlled by Egypt. It was salvation passed over by the blood of a lamb. Well, when we look at the crucifixion, now we look at, why did John bring up the Passover? Because now he's about to tell us in six days the crucifixion happened. And so the same thing, you've got to make the connection that he's making with the Passover Lazarus resurrection, and now another picture. That was just a a shadow supposed to point you to what's about to happen in the crucifixion, judgment. It was death by a substitutionary lamb, Jesus, the perfect lamb. It was slavery and being controlled by sin and Satan, where it was in the Old Testament, slavery being controlled by Pharaoh in Egypt, and God delivered them out and saved them out of that. Now it's delivered and saved out of slavery to sin. And then salvation is being passed over by the blood of the Lamb. So each one of us standing before, so car wreck, death at 90 years old, peacefully in your sleep, whatever it is, each person having to face God. And in that, those of us who are believers, God saying, you get to step back. You were freed because Jesus come as the innocent Holy One, and and he steps up and he takes on our wrath in this story that we read today, and he gives us his righteousness where you got passed over. Your sins were passed over and they were put on Jesus. He took the shame like we sang earlier. He took the guilt, all of those beautiful things. And in our sanctification, in your life after you've been saved, what we usually forget is I don't have to be tied to sin. It has no, no, no longer any power over me, and I have the righteousness of Christ. So it would be like him taking his robe off and applying it on you and wrapping you in his righteousness, his imputed righteousness. It's imputed to you. So you got a temptation this week to talk about that coworker, to look at something that you're not supposed to look at, to cheat a little bit on your taxes, to what? I don't have to. I don't have, that's a lie. I'm freed from that. In fact, I don't feel like it. I feel like that would kind of be an escape, and that would make me feel, no, that's a lie. I have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Jesus, would you help me, Holy Spirit? Would you help me to act righteously, act in my true identity that you've imputed to me instead of the lie? And that's imputed righteousness. You're borrowing his righteousness that he lived out for you. He lived 33 years in perfect holiness. That's imputed to you. 
That would be like me having $10 million over here and you going to McDonald's needing a dollar and you open up your wallet and you don't have a dollar and there's $10 million stacked up and you just keep forgetting that that's yours to use. That stack of $10 million, an unlimited supply of righteousness, of right actions, right thoughts, right behavior. I'm tempted in my thoughts. Hey, Jesus, I need your thoughts on loan because right now I'm really frustrated with my spouse, my children, my coworker, that person that's really ticking me off right now. I need patience right now, and I don't have patience. You have $100 million on loan. I need grace for them that I don't have. I don't have it in my good old heart. No, I, I need it imputed from you to me. And so those are the things that are brought up. And so both of those, the crucifixion and the Passover, they're both substitutionary atonement. So I want you to kind of connect those dots there. Let's look in John chapter 12, um, verses 23 through 26 there. And Jesus answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here's the disciples. It's just Passover. This is the third year we've done this with you. And so he actually sends a couple of them out, and a couple of disciples come up and tell him, hey, Jesus, do you want us to go and get the, the lamb and prepare for that? Do you want, we know this procedure, and he knows he's going to die. Yeah, go ahead and go ahead and get the lamb and prepare that. And go out and find some guy. You're, you're, and he even tells them, like, it's like some story where he tells them, predicts exactly, you're going to find this guy. Tell them we need to use an upper room that he has. So Jesus even predicts that, and so they're like kind of going out like, okay, we're supposed to find this one guy. He was very specific. They find this guy. He has an upper room, just like Jesus says, and now we're going to prepare the Passover meal, huge thing. So what we now know as the Lord's Supper, so the picture that your grandma may have had, we had one in our house, and we have one. And so even yesterday, as we're packing up to move stuff, uh, it's like a, probably a 1960s a big, huge picture of Jesus. I think one's on walking on water, and another one, and Jackson, he literally, he, like, he saw he's like, Dad. Can I hang this in our room wherever we get a house at? Like, it's just this, you know, it's like 1960s picture, but it's a cool picture. So the Lord's Supper, that's, what, that's what's happening right here. That's that picture that you saw, the picture of the, the famous Lord's Supper. That's what we are celebrating here. That's what we see. So the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so he's, he's giving a picture of himself first, but then also for his followers. So um, if he dies, it's going to bear, bear much spiritual fruit. The same thing in our lives. If you live for the world and live for your desire, it's not going to bear as much fruit. You may be productive, but it's not bearing spiritual fruit. If you die to self and deny yourself and, and take up your cross, it's going to bear spiritual fruit. So um, that's what we need to look at as, as followers of Christ. Whoever loves his life loses it, meaning the person that loves your life and clings on to your control and your desire for life and the way that you wanted it, you lose your soul. Man, if there's ever a place in the Bible Belt where everyone thinks that they're okay, um, that they're all right, that they don't need Jesus, it, it, it's here. And yet people who are living for themselves, and they may visit a church every once in a while, they may visit a church four times a year, once a month, and they're just going through the motions. They're not doing it because they're in love with Jesus. They think because they've got this little card in their pocket because they went to Falls Creek in the 90s or the early 2000s, and they're just going to get to pull that out. Well, I've lived for myself and pursued all these things. And sure, I've had some affairs, and I've, I've cheated some stuff, and I've, I lie all the time, and I do all these things. But hey, remember, I got this card. 
This guy told me, if I pray this prayer and repeat after him, I get in. And remember, Jesus is going to say, Matthew 7, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, and I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. You, you workers of iniquity. Even though you thought that was good, how many people around you assume that they're Christians? Everyone around us does because we're in the Bible Belt. If we were in California or Washington or New York and my friends in Harbor Network church planting, those guys, they'll, they'll talk about everyone out there, like 20 out of 20. They happily just go like, no, of course I'm not a believer in that book. Like, it's cool, though. I mean, that, that's cool. So tell me some of those stories. I've heard there's some crazy ones. Like, they don't know about David. They don't know about, you know, um, David and Goliath. They don't know Adam and Eve's story. They don't know about the stories about Jesus. They just know that we're crazy for believing this book. And so that, all those places, um, 20 out of 20, think that's just odd and kind of funny that you believe that. You know, and so what, what, is it just a decision you try to talk them into? No. The Holy Spirit has to open their eyes to see that this is real. So it takes time getting in life with them, sharing time with them, loving them, showing them the life of Jesus, not just come to a church meeting, come sit and listen. No, it's, it's living that in front of them, living a life on life, talking to them about, man, hey, this week, man, I heard some challenging stuff. I was really convicted because, man, I fail in so many ways. And so I was praying and kind of just confessing to God. That's, that's alien language to them. That's weird language to people. And you're just being yourself. Talking is almost an alien. You don't have to do the thing of, you know, like stepping into an elevator and like, oh, we've got 14 seconds. Hey, uh, if you're died, go to hell, or, uh, go to heaven. Would you go to heaven or hell right now? Well, you know, like that, that's just awkward for your coworkers. You know, like that, that, that's not, that's you checking something. That's not the Holy Spirit having time to work, right? And so it's been 30 years of that. Like the pressure on evangelism is getting to this, make a decision right now instead of like, hey, maybe we should serve and love and, and live as if Jesus really has changed us instead of being jerks and expecting them to dress up and come to a meeting. And so that's a whole different mindset. Um, so when Jesus is, is saying this, if you're going to pursue all those things in your life and just think that you're checkmarking because you come to a service or you try to do some good deeds, you, you've missed it. Jesus said, you completely miss it. Whoever hates his life or gives up his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's not earned by what you do. It's because you've understood living for him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. He will gain um, radical eternal life. And so when he gets to this section 31 and 32, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rule of this world be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So what's our role if salvation was accomplished in this week of Jesus' atoning sacrifice this week? So Jesus said here, so when I first surrendered my life to Christ, um, I knew that God had called me into ministry, and I'd been running from that for a long time and doing anything to avoid that. I wanted Sankey's own version, Sankey's life. And so I ran and ran and terrified of what that would look like. Um, and so then when I surrendered my life, I thought, man, well, I, I, I know I've just got to get the gospel to people. And this was one of the first verses that God gave me to take the pressure off of me feeling like it's my job to get people saved. So what's my role? Jesus says, when I am lifted up, on the, and he's talking about on the cross and exalted. When he was lifted up on the cross, I have the power and authority to draw him into myself. Sankey, your job is not to modify me, to make me cooler or to make me trendy. Your role is to exalt me with your life, with your words, 
with your actions, the way that you treat me, you're always to be pointing to me on the cross. To me, as the one dying that sacrificial life, I'll do the work of drawing people to myself. You clarify the gospel and rest and trust in me. Your job is to point to me being exalted on the cross. That's everything. So that's a huge change and shift for people. And so John says there, he said this to show what kind of death that he would um, eventually die. So all of those things are pointing to this week. Um, as, as we go through um, going from chapter 12, I want to run through real quickly just these, this walk through these last six days of Jesus. So in chapter, we were in chapter 12, and Jesus says these big statements. And then chapter 13, same night, same situation. They're, having, they're, they're, they're gathered together in this upper room in, in John 13. Uh, some of the famous kind of standout sections come some of the high points. You remember Jesus watching, washing the disciples' feet. So look in John 13. Now before the feast of Passover, John again, I'm landed on pretty thick. Are you getting it about the Passover, Israel? Are you people understanding? After this happens, I want you to look back and remember, make the connection between Passover and what just happened in Jerusalem. Is everyone getting it? And so that's, that's what John's doing in his writing. Like I'm laying this on pretty thick. I hope you're getting this. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to be with the Father. Having loved his own disciples who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In the famous story, he comes to Peter and Peter says, no, 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 you, you couldn't wash my feet, Lord. And then Jesus says, oh, Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you're, you're not going to be cleansed at all. And he's like, okay, then my whole body. So, you know, Peter's just, you know, a quick reactor. And so, um, Beautiful stuff. So what's the point of washing the disciples' feet? The highest God, creator God, that is completely separate from us in another category, lowering himself in humility and love to become a servant who deserves the highest standing where all of us would just serve and serve and serve and treat him like the true king that he is, not even an earthly, humanly king, but a a set-apart, super-spiritual king, a supernatural king, And yet a supernatural being humbles himself in human form and comes and takes a towel and does what what slaves would do. Let me wash your dirty feet. And he tells them, do you get what I'm doing here? That's the way every one of us should treat each other. And we stink at that, don't we? We're pitiful at that. So that kind of love, that kind of humility, that kind of thinking, thinking, as Philippians 2 says, others more significant than yourself. And that's this same night building towards his cross. Remember Jesus' new commandment. Look in in the end of this chapter in 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment that I give you, that you love one another. Now think through this. Jesus had made many teachings. Love your enemies. Pray for them. When people persecute you, you're still supposed to love them. Hey, the old-fashioned, the one that everyone knew, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, hey, a new commandment I've got. Love one another. And they're like, Jesus, we've heard this like 3,000 times. Because this is a different one. It's a new commandment. 
I want to show you in a few hours the kind of love that you're supposed to have for each other. You think it was humble and lowly and loving of me being God and washing your feet like a slave? Love each other like this, a complete self-emptying where I take on every bit of your sin, everything you've ever done wrong, everything you've thought wrong, that kind of love. By this type of love, when the world sees that, they're going to realize that you are my disciples, that kind of love. Again, let's ask ourselves, are, are, are we that kind of people? You know how easy it is, if you got some money, to put on a really good show on Sundays? You find some talented 20-somethings that are phenomenal on social media, some great people with lighting ability, and it's hundreds and thousands, millions of dollars stuff. Are, are we good at that? Man, sign me up for the next conference or the next big church thing that's doing these things, and it looks all good. How good are we doing on that? Humility, love, service, the type of love that would, that would just self-empty. And so a new commandment that I give you. If you go on, John 14, where he says the famous words, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. Why did he say that? He was in a time where there was all, all the Eastern religions were around him. It was exclusivity. To this day, we know that there's, there's not going to be Hindus and Buddhists and animalists and, and different Muslims that, that are going to come into the faith. And there's a lot of people, or again, the younger generations, where that was not understood for a while, but the younger generations now um, are, are kind of open to the idea that, that it's going to be that God is going to allow people that followed and worshipped other gods, that, that he, they're going to get another chance. That's easy theologically, but when Jamie and I were in California in the summers in L.A., and, and so when you're talking with a Hindu over and over, and you're starting to share the gospel with them, and you can tell that their understanding, hold, hold on, so what you're saying, Sankey, if, if what you're saying is true about Jesus and he's the only way to heaven, do you realize what you're saying about my parents, and my wife's parents, my brothers and sisters, my grandparents, her grandparents, my great-grandparents? Do you realize what you're saying, how offensive that is? They were devout. Again, I hope that you've, we've, we've been loving and not just like, yeah, apologetics. I love apologetics. Proving you wrong, proving me right. That wasn't what it was about, but I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You know how hard that is having three boys, knowing that they're surrounded by a culture that, that, that thinks, you know, we're the cool, fun thing. That's what church is about. No, the only guarantee is you better be focused and in love with Jesus. So as you're raising kids, you're looking at your own life, are you teaching them that there's only one way? And everyone around you, it's going to become popular and the norm that you're an idiot and a bigot if you think that he, there's only an exclusive right. And there'll probably be some changes um, politically to where um, Islam, Christianity, and um, uh, Judaism, those are the only three exclusives. So you can believe other things, other religions, and they're all kind of polytheistic and everyone gets in. But Islam believes that we're the only ones getting in. Judaism believes we're the only ones getting in. And Christianity believes we're the only ones getting in. So there'll be some probably political things that will say, all these wars through history, y'all have heard this, that they all come from these idiots that are, you know, just extremists that are monotheistic. And they believe they're the only ones going to heaven. So 
we can fix that politically, right? And so you can't do this. You can't practice gathering together. That, that may happen one day. Jesus said, I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Um, as we get into John 17, it's one of my favorite sections where Jesus is praying there. Look in John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So this is when he had said, hey, Peter, John, James, you guys come with me. The other disciples stay back. Judas has already left. And then they get to Gethsemane. You guys just stay awake and pray. And Jesus goes off by himself in Gethsemane. And uh, it's those final hours. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is what eternal life is, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you have gave me to do. Think through that. And that's a beautiful thing to think through. That should be a life trajectory. That should be a life purpose, like accomplishing the work. None of us are going to die on the cross for people. But are you considering the 85% of your thrust of life? Am I living out what God wanted me to do? Am I going to be able to face God and him say, well done, good and faithful servant? Am I going to be able to stand before God going, man, I know I completed the work that he gave me to do. Beautiful stuff in John 17. Um, When we get to chapters 18 and 19, let's look at chapter 19. This is after now Judas has come. The the, the guards all come with Judas over just a few uh, dollars worth of change. Judas comes up and gives him a kiss. Then Peter, as they grab Jesus, Judas, or as they grab Jesus, is that right? It's not, it's not Judas, right? It's Jesus is the right one. They, they grab him, and Peter cuts off the guy's sword. Just imagine what it's like for the, the peaceful guy to pick up the guy's ear as these hundreds of guys are watching, and he gracefully puts the ear back on, and it just stays. That guy's freaking out. The people around him, like, I'm out. Like, I, I'm just, like, dropping my sword. I'm running. I'm getting out of that situation, or I'm grabbing a hold of Jesus, and they can stab me or whatever, but, like, I want out of this situation. You know, so people are just dumbfounded, you know, and then he's like, hey, put away the sword, Jesus. Shouldn't I drink what my Father has given me to drink? Meaning, I'm going to take on the wrath of sins. And then in, verse, in chapter 19, he's gone before Pilate, all these things, and, and at every one of these scenes, even back then with hundreds of soldiers that come to grab him, Jesus in an instant could have called down a million angelic beings that showed up and just flattened all those, all those that mob and all those guards. He could have flattened them, and he allowed himself. He went as a suffering servant. He went with them along this course. And then they gets before Pilate, and they flogged him, so that's not fun. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and, and put on a purple robe. And they came up to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they hit him in the face. Then Pilate went, went to him and said, I'm bringing you out that, you may, uh, that they may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns. So he's just beat down by all these guys, this purple robe. And, and Pilate said, Behold the man. So John says that, as John was in the crowd right there, this isn't just a man. But John says, this guy's got a wrong understanding. Behold, just the man. 
So John's trying to get you to juxtapose those two views. Obviously, this is not just a man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him. I, I find no guilt. So Pilate, remember, is wanting out of this. He, he doesn't want any guilt. His wife had come and said, hey, I had a dream. I think that may be the son of God. Like That would stink to be in that position, right? Take him yourselves. The Jews answered, we have a law. And according to the law, he ought to die because he said that he's the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Well, that's what my wife told me. And what do you do when God's convicting you of something? Or God's opening your eyes to say, do, do, do you turn? Or do you listen to what God's saying? Thank God you're not Pilate, right? Because you have to follow through with this. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority? John's wanting you, the, crew, the Jews at that time, to know. Pilate, oh, we're fearful of Pilate. No one treats Pilate this way. He's got thousands of soldiers. This guy's got a lot of authority. So that's John's wanting you to, again, juxtapose. Here's the one. Arms bound, purple robe, bleeding, beat down. The one with all authority. He says, do you not know that I have all the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes him a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. John again is hinting to us. I want you to hear the word judgment seat of a guy who is not the true judge. Of a guy who has no power, actually. And he sits him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, very well known at that time, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. And John's going, Did you get that? This is what brought this here is the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Here's your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. So Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So let's pray.